Welcome to Scary Savannah and Beyond Season 1, Episode 9. I'm your host, Brett, and with me, as always, is my absolutely stunning wife, Crystal. (laughs) Crystal, how have you been this week? I've had a great week. We're actually recording this on New Year's Eve, so I'm excited about tonight. Go dogs. Yeah, go dogs. Hopefully, uh, when you listen to this episode, you won't be making fun of us <laughs> for pulling for a loser team. Hopefully not. Yeah, they got to go beat Michigan. I know you big football fans listen to this. I'm sure you know all about that. You can find us on the web if you want to check us out at www.scarysavannahandbeyond.com. You can also find us at www.scarysavannah.net. I recommend you go check that website out because we're going to be putting up pictures as well as other things that relate to the story that we're going to be telling you today, right? Yeah, and hopefully we're going to be putting out more videos. Yes, I have decided that I'm going to go back to my old school route to video editing and we're going to have really exciting videos at some point. We already have some on YouTube, so go find our YouTube page and check it out. We had a walkthrough at the Colonial Park Cemetery and talk a little bit about that. I think that was an interesting video, don't you? Yeah, that place is fascinating. You can find us on social media if you go to Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And TikTok. And TikTok and YouTube. And I even think I made a LinkedIn page, you know, just to be (laughs) real business about it. Look for the username at Scary Savannah. And you can find us on any of those. We actually created a profile on Good Pods as well. If any of you use Good Pods, go check us out. You can find us there as well. Our phone number, if you'd like to give us a call and have anything you'd like to play on the show, or if you have any questions or story ideas, just anything, when you call, you'll get a voicemail. And that phone number is 912-406-2899. Once again, that number is 912-406-2899. We'd ask you to go check out our Patreon page if you can to support the podcast. We would love for you to do that. You can go to patreon.com forward slash scary savannah. You can support us for as little as $3 a month. And if you support at a little bit higher level, there is some merchandise that you can get, right? And there's some really cool stuff. We actually sent two mugs to your parents for as part of their Christmas present. They turned out really cool. Very cool mugs. We've got shirts. Uh, There are stickers and, um, you know, backpacks. Go check that out. That's not actually on Patreon, but it no, is on our somewhere. web store you if you go to our page. So you can check that out. And we have a very uh, special request here. I'm going to let Crystal talk about one of our friends is having some issues. Crystal, you want to just shortly talk about it? Yeah, we have a friend named Joni that we met this summer through the music scene. Everything's through the music <laughs> scene when I'm here. And she's been going through a rough year already. And then right before Christmas, her house actually burned down. And she's a single mother of two teenage sons. And they lost basically everything. And they have no no homeowner's insurance. It's estimated it's going to cost $30,000 to totally rebuild, get everything back to livable conditions. If you could help at all, just any little bit will help. She has a GoFundMe. And we're going to put the link on our website and our personal websites. Yes. And I'll try to put that link in our show notes as well so that you can find that there if you would like to and are able to help her out. I am sure that would be greatly appreciated. If you go to GoFundMe's website and type in the name Joni Keller, J-O-A-N-I-E-K-E-L-L-E-R, you'll be able to find it that way. Okay. Yeah. And definitely do that if you can. 
this week uh, actually was Crystal's birthday on December 27th, right? It was. Yeah. And before we get into our main story, we want to give you a little update on what we actually did for her birthday. I, being the romantic guy that I'm not, <laughs> decided to book her a special night in Savannah, and I'm hoping she enjoyed it. I did. Yeah. So what we did was, is I booked a night at the Foley House Inn, and that is one of the more haunted locations in Savannah. One well, of them, they all say that. But. Well, they all say that. <laughs> they actually have it on their website, but oh, I, would, well, I would too, you know, if I had a inn in Savannah, it would definitely be, oh, we're the most haunted. Definitely. For sure. So I booked that there. We went out and had some dinner, and I also booked a haunted tour to go on so that we could see if maybe we could find some new stories or just get a little bit more information on the things that we already know. And I've got some audio clips I'm going to play you on that. So here's the first clip where we're actually standing outside of the inn, and I'll play it for you now. So me and Crystal are currently sitting outside of the Foley House Inn, right? Yes, we are on the balcony right outside our room. We are. Uh, we went, and it is her birthday, so we went and had a nice steak dinner, and we came back, and I broke out the recorder and thought I'd go ahead and just try to do some EVPs, and the very first time I tried to do it, one of the questions I asked was, are you okay with us being here? And almost immediately after I said that, we got a response. But we're not sure if it was yes or no. It kind of sounded like yes. It it's sort really of sounds like this. The problem is, is we don't have all of our audio equipment with us, so I have no way to actually listen to this EVP until we get home. So I guess if we survive the night, we'll know if it was a yes. Yeah, right. we've already heard at least one good story from our host. Yes. We'll on the podcast. Yes, and we will definitely have an update about the Foley House. Yeah. And what did you think about it when you first initially saw it? I thought it was beautiful, like all the historic homes in Savannah. I'd never even heard of this one, but it's really nice. It is. It's very, very beautiful, especially the street appeal from seeing it, going up the stairs to get in on the second floor, as you do in a lot of the older houses there. Yeah, if you aren't used to downtown Savannah, be prepared for stairs. And same on Tybee. Every house has stairs. And yeah. Very little elevators. Well, so. the other thing about Savannah is not just the stairs. It's the cobblestone walkways and the old historic yeah, walks. Yeah, be careful walking anywhere. So <laughs> don't wear high heels I if you value it. your ankle. I've done it too I, many times. I stopped wearing them <laughs> because I just didn't feel like I could protect myself well enough to do that. Yeah, it was a good choice. So to give you a brief history about the Foley House, it was built in 1896, and I'm going to butcher this, but I think it's Honoria or Honoria Foley. She was the widow of the wealthy Irish immigrant Owen Foley. And there's an interesting bit of history about this particular inn. The original homestead was the first actual Savannah bed and breakfast. Did you know that? I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. The house was built over the ashes of a home that was destroyed in the Great Savannah Fire of 1889. So apparently so we've, we've had, had more, more than, than one. one. I was going to say, because the other one was like 1820, right? Yeah, it was 1820. At least the one we know about. I assume that was maybe the first one. People need to be careful with their lighters. I guess so. It's probably some hipster back then <laughs> that said, uh, hey, you mind if you like me cigarette? <laughs> you know, because that's how they talk back then, right? <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. Well, close enough. 
Anyways, we do have a lot of listeners in the UK. Maybe they can help me with the pronunciation if they, you know, hear that about how you might light a cigarette. So, so they're British here. British? Don't well, it was them. a British-owned. I know, colony. but wouldn't they have already had American accents at this point? When you think, it when do you think American accents started? I don't know. That's the thing. Like, when did it evolve into what we sound like? When did people start sounding like me? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that anyone does, but I, I can't imagine them walking up and being like. Hey, man, y'all got anything like that old good cigarette with, huh? No, they probably did how, not. How you and Yun's doing? How, how's, how's your, your mom and them? them? You know, so she enjoyed success with the inn for a number of years. However, it seems she may have had a dark side as well. Don't they all? I, most of them do. You know, wouldn't make a good story if they didn't. No. During a renovation of the house in 1987, which is about 100 years after, Construction workers discovered human skeletal remains behind a wall. This is really not shocking to me, honestly. We probably got one in our house. I, I don't know. It's, you know, everybody's got a skeleton know, in their wall like, here in this Chatham County yeah, area. It's pretty common, probably. Yeah. Although the skeleton has never been conclusively identified, it is believed to be the bones of a previous border of the inn. He was a person that stayed there in the late 1800s. He was a wealthy exporter in Savannah, in town on business. Then, one night, he mysteriously disappeared and was never heard from again. Maybe he, like, went down to the pirate's house and uh, got shanghai that way. Who knows? Yeah. I don't know how he could have got out on that boat and ended up in the wall at the same time, but I guess well, weirder things have him? happened. It might not be, but that's what <laughs> the story is all speculation. says. It's all speculation. <laughs> Speaking of speculation, they speculate that he was murdered for his money and consequently stowed away behind the wall to hide the crime. The story I heard was that he was coming on to her and she was having none of that. And one night he snuck into her bedroom and it startled her and she grabbed the nearest thing to her, which was a big candlestick. A big old candlestick. Yeah, And yeah. she smashed him over the head with it. And accidentally, as you said, murdered Accidentally him. murdered. <laughs> and Which with is a, manslaughter, right? <laughs> hopefully. But it seems well, like she got, away, she got, she got away, away with it. What degree of manslaughter would that have been? I don't know what candlestick to the head is. Okay, so they don't actually have an episode of something on those shows you watch about no, a candlestick manslaughter I've case. I've never seen anyone accidentally murder someone with a candlestick. Yeah, I bet you haven't. Uh, then she had a carpenter friend help her uh, hide him in the wall. That is one of the stories. The other story is that exact same story. So, <laughs> and you can hear the dog in the background. Just to let you know, Layla and Coffee are big parts of our podcast production team. And they, <laughs> yeah, you'll you hear heard, you'll hear them in yes. the background working. Yes, Layla does snoring, gentle jingling, snores. squeaking so, toys. If you hear the heavy breathing, it's not a ghost. It is our dog. She loves to lay on the floor when we're recording and just snore away. Yeah. She's a big monster. You got to look at her picture. Put another picture up on the I website. Will. The staff there often hear odd stories, such as that of a man in a top hat walking around the garden late at night. We were in the garden. It seemed like a place a ghost would hang out. Yeah. yeah. Strange noises can be heard and unexplainable gusts of air without reasonable cause. So could it be Wally? Apparently, that is what they named their ghost. How very Leather. catchy. Right? So, <laughs> Wally. Yeah, Wally, the wall ghost. <laughs> Could be a Disney movie. Yeah. It wasn't so creepy. Well, they do some weird stuff nowadays. They do. You know? We went inside the inn to check in, and the nice guy at the desk was... Montre. Montre. He was working to get us into our room. 
and being the intrepid ghost hunters that we are, (laughs) as he finished with all the details that we had to do, I asked him about his experiences at Foley House, and he didn't disappoint, did he? No, he didn't. He had a good story for us. He did. So to paint the picture for you, when you go to the Foley House Inn, you walk up stairs, as we said, stairs everywhere, off the street, you come in the door, and the host desk is right inside the front door. He said he was sitting there and was by himself and heard an alarm clock go off. It just started going crazy. It was coming from a room that didn't currently have any guests checked in. That doesn't sound like a big deal to most of us until he tells you why that's weird. Because he said the interesting thing about that is that should not be possible. He says that when guests aren't in the room, they actually turn the power off to the rooms that are not currently being used, meaning there's no source of power for any electrical device to be operating. So an alarm clock being an electrical device was going off. But what about batteries? Yeah, see, that was the next thing (laughs) I said. So we're like sitting there thinking, okay, well, what about batteries? Well, he said he was so shocked by this because he heard it. So, of course, as you do in a horror movie, he went to go in and investigate it by himself. And sure enough, the power in the room was turned off and there was no battery in the alarm clock. Yet, it was going off and going crazy. (laughs) That. You know, and, and Crystal's going to tell you a little bit about her experiences here, which could lead you to believe that this is something that did happen because they did tell us that the spirits in this room, well, not this room, but the entire inn, are more mischievous than mischievous. 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 What a good word. Mischievous than harmful. So, what yeah, that, they like to play with electronics, apparently. Yeah. So he was investigating and no power no batteries. He was so shocked by this and thought that no one would believe him. So he pulled out his cell phone and FaceTimed his sister to show her that it was happening and to make sure he wasn't just crazy. Yeah, she also works there. So she's familiar with the stories. Yeah. So unfortunately, I asked him if he had videoed this happening and he didn't because he just pulled it out. I guess in his shock, he FaceTimed her. So he did have a witness and I believe him. Yeah, it would have been great to see the video, though. Especially after hearing what happened to Crystal. I definitely believe him that this actually happened, but it would have been nice to get a video. Yeah. So, after all this, we made our way up to the room, and it didn't disappoint either. It was a very nice room. How how would you describe it? (laughs) Roomy? It was quite old, like you would expect. What you would expect. Yeah, Yeah. it looks just like it probably should have looked in the 1800s, but a little updated, but... There was a wardrobe there that freaked me out. I was convinced there was something going to come out of that in the middle of the night. I'm surprised it didn't. I am too. Because it really should have. So when we got into our room, I pulled out my Zoom recorder, which is what we're using to try to do EVPs and various other things. And I did a little quick recording and actually got something on the first try. So I'm going to go ahead and play a clip for you of what I captured on my first attempt. Are you okay with us being here? Okay, so when I asked if anyone was okay being in that room, we got a hit. I can't tell what it said. Do you think you know? I can't really tell. It's either yes or no. or It's definitely not, I'm going to murder you tonight. Yeah, at least he didn't say that. It was hopefully yes. I hope so. 
So afterwards, we left to go on our haunted tour. Our tour guide was Nicole and from the tour company, ghostcitytours.com. Highly recommend. It was very good. So check them out if you're in town and looking for a ghost tour. And she was a very good host and gave us a few stories that we haven't heard before, maybe expounded upon a few we had heard before. She was very entertaining. The most interesting one regarding the Union soldiers during the Civil War era and how they got more than they expected I'm going to play you a little clip of that right now. The, the Union soldiers happened upon the Shad family plantation. They love the plantations, right? Good pickings there. Um, and they had vaults usually on the on the land itself. And, you know, those, those families always hoped that the soldiers would be too respectful to go into their family vaults. But, you know, they weren't. So they helped themselves to the Shad family vault, right? They stomp right on in there. And inside, there's a big barrel of wine. They're very delighted to find this, right? They like wine and they're at war. So they break this this barrel of wine open, start scooping big cups up there, slurping it down. And what they don't know is the Shad family had a daughter who had died at school years before. And the school was faced with a problem of how to return the body to the family, and they didn't have preservatives, right? Two-week train ride in the heat, you gotta do something. So when that family arrived at the train station, they were presented with the barrel of wine containing the little shadette. That's what was in there. So they had no choice but to, you know, wheel that barrel home and put it in the family vault. So that day, those Union soldiers thought they found Merlot, but what they really found was Margot. <laughs> and so the funny thing is, is that before that tour, we had dinner at a steakhouse, and we both had a glass of wine, <laughs> one glass of wine each, and it made us feel kind of sick. It did. <laughs> and I'm wondering, was that some of that Margot wine? I really don't think so. Man, I wish I had <laughs> really a drum shot. I'm going to find one. <laughs> and after all that, we went back to the room to turn in for the night. Our tour had started around 10 p.m., so we didn't get back into the room until pretty late. It was around 1 a.m. So, being the brave paranormal investigator <laughs> that I am, I thought it would be a great time to try to do another EVP. So, we did one last recording session before going to bed, and this is what we got. So we are going to bed at the Foley House Inn. It's pretty late right now. It's around uh, almost one in the morning. And it's dark and it's quiet. So we're going to maybe see if we could do an EVP session here. Just a real quick one. So Crystal, you want to do it? Do you really want to know if there's anything in here? No. <laughs> But that's why we're here. I don't think you're going to like the answer. I'm not going to listen to it until tomorrow. Is there anyone else in this room? So we got a second response about being in the room. Crystal, why don't you tell them about your experiences with Wally on that little trip we just took? Okay, so... It's 5 a.m. and Brett's asleep, of course, and I woke up. And Sleeper's going to sleep, baby. <laughs> and uh, we had fallen asleep with the TV on. So I grabbed the remote next to the bed and I pushed the button like 50 times and it would not turn off. And I'm like, maybe I'm pushing the wrong button. So I got my phone light out and I looked and I was pushing the right button. 
So eventually I got it to turn off and I set the remote back on the bedside table. And as soon as my head hit the pillow, the TV turned back on. Yes. And the interesting thing about that is, is that in the morning, she said, she told me all about this. And I'm like, give me the remote. She gave me the remote. And I turned it off. Wait, first button press. Yeah, easy. one time, easy. And I could not get it to turn off. And then it just turned back on. So I'm like sitting there. It's five and it's dark and I'm scared. And I'm like, I don't really want to. You were it. scared. Well, not real scared. You make fun of me all the time on this yeah, show. Yeah, but you were asleep. <laughs> so it's like if I wake him up in the middle of the night because of something, he never remembers it. So technically so I, know. I was the brave one of the two. Then. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I'm not going to like try to get on this ghost nerve. So I'm like, if you want to watch Netflix, let's watch. So I just left it on and we got along great. I yeah. think he likes Forensic Files. Okay. That's probably something I think I'd be into if I was a murdered ghost, you know, seeing how they do it nowadays. Yeah. Maybe they could have solved his murder if yeah. it was 1900 something. Yeah. So earlier, and then after that, I woke up pretty early because I wake up early anyways because my we body's had to go pay for parking. That. Yeah. I was laying there and all of a sudden I heard a blood curdling scream of a woman and the house is pretty big. It's like four stories, right? Yeah, it's four stories. Yeah, so I thought it was like somewhere far away in the in the house. I thought, well, if this is inside the house, you know, people are going to start moving and running around and there's going to be chaos, but nothing moved and no sound. So I was like, well, it must be outside. And it's like, well, it's Savannah. So, you know, maybe someone's getting stabbed. Yep. It could be. And I was so wide awake. He was outside. So I was like, well, then he must have heard it outside if that's the case. So when he came back in, I asked him if he heard the woman scream and he said no. So I'm like, oh, okay. So yeah. And that no was idea. the story that she brought up second. Not the first one about <laughs> the TV, which is not, you know, I could maybe have done that one. But if I was sitting there now, it probably, it's probably better that it happened in the order it did. Because if you yeah. heard a blood curdling scream at, at 5, 5 in the morning, yeah. <laughs> then well, you probably would have woken me up yeah, and we would have left. But mm, yeah, well, yeah. no, then what if it was outside? I don't want to go oh, out there. Right. Someone's screaming. Then we would just huddle in the bed until daylight. <laughs> so it was a good trip. We had a good time and hopefully we'll be spending more time in Savannah and, and updating you on that. But that brings us to the point now where we're going to talk about our actual story for this week. And it is a true crime story. So I'm going to go ahead and let Crystal take it over. Yes. This week, we're going to be talking about the Circleville letters. Are you familiar with this? No, it sounds like a Scooby-Doo episode. <laughs> no. I bet it's a little darker than Scooby-Doo, though. So for this, we're going to have to go back in time a little bit to the late 1970s. Do the disco music. Good times, which we weren't quite born for. Well, well, I was. Well, we were babies. I mean, I was basically a full-blown adult. I lived four days in the 70s. I was so. like two. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a time before cell phones and computers, you know, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Imagine that. It's hard to. So today it's easy for people to basically know everything about you, even if you don't know them. Yeah. Yeah. I have that happen all the time. People will come up and say something about where I, what I was doing or where I was or my kids. And I'm like, I yeah. don't even the know The funny thing is, is uh, stuff like Facebook. I mean, I'll have people that follow me because I'm a musician and then she'll have some random person come up her and ask her. So uh, how are those fingernails doing that you had done two days ago at 11 a.m.? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, like a friend of a friend of a friend may know your kids' ages, where you work, where you hang out, but it wasn't like that in the 70s. If they did, then you probably had a stalker. Yeah. So privacy was a much bigger aspect of everybody's everyday life. 
So when the residents of Circleville, Ohio, started receiving hundreds of letters in the mail, basically threatening to expose all their personal secrets, things got scary. Oh, really? This was a mass thing? Yeah. Oh. Circleville, Ohio is a typical small town with a current population of about 14,000 people today. So 1976, 77, there were probably a lot less. It's really a small town. Yeah, so they basically have a population of about how many people show up on Tybee any given Saturday. Yeah. Circleville is located about 25 miles south of Columbus, Ohio. Their claim to fame is their annual pumpkin festival that still continues to this day. I think it's pretty cool. Like, I looked up some info on that, and I've got a few pictures. They, like, really go all out. Is it tied to Halloween, or is it just... Pumpkin festival. It's just pumpkins. Like, do they have I think a lot they, of jack o' lanterns? Mm, do they have the great pumpkin? They do. Like, they, I think you get a, an award for growing the biggest pumpkin, the and grandest they make, pumpkin, and they make a tree, like a Christmas tree, out of pumpkins. It's pretty okay. cool. That is pretty interesting. We'll have to look that up. So the city was named because the original layout of the town center was a circle with the county courthouse in the center. Wow, they were very imaginative back then, weren't they? <laughs> yeah, like Circleville. It's been redesigned. It, boys. <laughs> it's been redesigned into a grid style like most other cities now, but they kept the name. We have a, a cool grid name. style city. We do. That's a cool name, Circleville. Yeah. So let's go to March 1977 in the idyllic small town of Circleville. The superintendent of schools named Gordon Massey checks his mail and discovers a letter postmarked from Columbus, Ohio, which I told you is about 25 miles away. Yes. It's written in blocky, all-caps lettering. And here's a clip of what the letter contained. Dear sir, according to my GF, I assume girlfriend, you have asked her to go out many times and have asked the other female bus drivers too. This must stop at once for the good of the school and families. If they are not stopped, I will be forced to write to the school board, and I would hate to do that. To prey on another man's girl is untouchable. I suggest you find yourself a pimple-faced whore and start up with her and leave my girls alone. So that was a very well thought out reasoned (laughs) response from that guy. Yeah. So Gordon Massey, being a married father of a teenage son and essentially a pillar of the community, is shocked and scared by this accusation. Wouldn't you be? Yeah. I mean, I've only gotten one threatening letter in my life and it didn't didn't scare me so much, but I, I know what it feels like. So whether or not it's true, it could still have huge implications for him with his job and his family. Oh, I'm sure it could ruin you, even if it isn't true, because people want to believe scandalous things. Mm -hmm. And the very next day, the school board begins receiving letters about this, you know, relating to Gordon Massey. Okay. Accusing him of um, harassment of the school bus drivers and demanding that he be fired. So even though he wrote in the first letter that he's going to be forced to do more, he just went ahead and did it anyway. Yeah. But the thing that didn't happen. Right. Okay. Well, according to him, it well, wasn't true. We, he says I don't true. know if it happened. Gordon Massey it says it didn't happen. Okay. So since the school board um, didn't want to just fire him based on accusations, they didn't really do anything. And so since this didn't work, the writer decided to get more specific. The principal of the school that he was working at received a letter and 
it said this. I want to protect your school. It has a good reputation. You should keep it like that. I shall send you proof about driver number 62917. She has a child in school there now. I shall prove this shortly. I expect him to be discharged. You'll see that I'm telling the truth. So these letters are sounding pretty ominously scary and threatening. Yeah, and like he's got a lot of the details. He knows her bus driver number, so... Yeah, that's pretty specific. And I imagine it might be a little harder to get that information in the 70s. Yeah, so you had to know a lot about these people. So he had to actually know who this person was. Right. Makes me wonder if he actually did know her, or maybe this is one of those crazy people that thinks they know people, like on the Andy Griffith Show, where the guy wanted to be... A member of Mayberry, oh, yeah. but he was really just an outsider. Yeah. And he knew and he, everybody. He like, read all about him in the paper. Yeah, he knew everybody, and he knew everything that everyone did, and it freaked everyone out. Of course, yeah. he probably wasn't the kind of guy that this guy or a woman is going to be, I imagine. But Well, let's find out. So now it's getting serious. He seems bent on ruining Massey's reputation, whether this is true or not. And now he's bringing other people into it. Like I said, he's sending out hundreds of letters, and by the end, it's going to be thousands. So he's very determined. Okay, were were these all handwritten? Uh, not all of them. They start out all handwritten, like you see, and you'll see on our page. Um, they're very all all caps, usually blocky, and they're not well written. A lot of mistakes with contractions and spelling. I've already seen that misspelling words can get you when you're a criminal. Sometimes you misspell <laughs> yeah, words the, the same, same way, way and. Also, just, you know, you're looking at this guy's handwriting or woman's, I don't know which, this handwriting here, it looks, it just looks scary. It looks scary. scary. Yeah, it does. Yeah. So, this school bus driver numbered 62917 is a married mother of two named Mary Gillespie. At the same time others are receiving letters, she's getting her own fair share of them. And one of them reads, stay away from Massey. Don't lie when questioned about knowing him. I know where you live. I've been observing your house and know you have children. This is no joke. Please take it serious. Everyone concerned has been notified and everything will be over soon. Well, that sounds both ominous and poorly worded. (laughs) Yeah, so imagine you're her and you're receiving these letters. And if it's not true, if you're not having an affair... Do you tell your husband about this? What do you do? Like, well, they're threatening your children. I know. and it, But then, like, and what, what if he believes? And what will be over soon? I, I don't know. So she doesn't know. So this constant barrage of letters is accusing her of having an affair with Gordon Massey. They're threatening to harm her family, including her 12-year-old daughter, Tracy. They seem to have a fascination with Tracy. Okay. That's, which that's, comes up later. That's unsettling. She tries to ignore the letters and just hopes the writer will get bored and stop. But unfortunately, this is not the case. Again, he changes tactics and starts sending letters to her husband, Ron Gillespie. Okay. Accusing his wife of having an affair. He tells Ron that he better do something or his life would be in danger. Why would this person care if she's having an affair? Exactly. And on what top business of that, is why it would be yours? like, well, if you don't stop this woman, I'm going to have to kill you. <laughs> so, as you can imagine, Ron is angry and wants an explanation. So, he confronts his wife. But she insists that it's all lies and she isn't having an affair with Gordon Massey. And he pretty much believes her. And they decide to try to ignore the letters and hope the writer will stop and leave them alone. And get bored of this clearly it's fun for maniacal him. activity. But however, in April of 1977, Ron receives another letter. And this is what 
this letter says. Oh, this can't be good. No. Galipsy, you had two weeks and done nothing. You're a pig defender. You are also a pig. Make her admit the truth and inform the school board. If not, I will broadcast it on CB. Posters, signs, billboards until the truth comes out. Only pigs ride motorcycles. Good hunting in your red and white truck on your way to work. I followed him for weeks since last summer and have seen her meet him several times. You will see this is no joke. Okay, so this guy clearly is observing these people and is not just making stuff up. He's starting to like. broadcast it on the CB radio now. I don't Come know. On. You know everybody's on there. Everybody was on there. Everybody had a handle back Hey, Big then. Ten. My mama was little cowgirl. <laughs> what was your papa? Shy boy. Shy boy. <laughs> My mom was cowgirl and he was shy boy. Shy boy. And did you ever take cow- the CB and play on it? I know I you're did not play supposed with to, it. are you? I did. You're not allowed to do it. You're actually not allowed to do it unless you have a license to do it, I think. Oh, really? I think truck drivers have to have well, licenses. Papa was a truck driver. I don't know how my mom got away with I, it. I don't but know you if know that's her. true, but I'm pretty sure in order to broadcast on certain frequencies, you're supposed oh, to. Well, we were probably on the right frequencies. Oh, I'm sure. So, you know, he is like, he knows what he drives to work and he says that he's been following. I'm assuming it means Massey and seeing his wife meet him. He's threatening to basically ruin their lives or possibly worse, harm the family. So Mary and Ron decide to tell Ron's sister, Karen, and her husband, Paul Freshour, about the tormenting letters. Mary had a good idea who she thought was behind the letters. She thought it was a fellow bus driver named David Longberry. Oh, Dave. She claimed that he had made a pass at her the year before and that she had rejected him. And so she thinks that he's like trying to get revenge. And being a bus driver, remember the first letter he said, you know, you're messing with the girls. Yeah. Meaning all the girl bus drivers. Well, looking at the handwriting, I would just assume a guy wrote this. I Probably. I don't know. It could have been forced to look that way, but that's how I interpreted the handwriting. So they decide and they come up with a plan and they decide to send David Longberry some letters of their own and tell him that they know it's him and he better stop or they're going to go to the police. So this seemed to work for a time. The letters stopped. But then one day, Ron is driving to work and he sees a sign along the road saying nasty things about their daughter. I mean, really nasty things. Ooh, about that's their not daughter. good. Their 12 year old daughter. That's awful. The worst one said that Gordon Massey was abusing Tracy. I can only imagine what that means. Yeah. So Ron is furious, of course, and he begins driving around early before work every morning and removing the signs, but they keep popping up. And it seems like if it were me, I would be sitting out at night watching the spots. Yeah. See what's going on here. Involve the police and have them stake it out or something. Yeah. You would think. So he was becoming increasingly frustrated. So the family is clearly under stress probably lack of sleep and maybe paranoia. So Mary and her sister-in-law, Karen, decide to take a girl's trip to Florida just to get away and clear their heads. So it's August 19th, 1977, and Ron is home with his two children, and he receives a phone call. Oh, no, it's escalating. Yeah, so his daughter, Tracy, said he was yelling into the phone and seemed to recognize the caller's voice. He hung up the phone, grabbed his twenty-two caliber handgun, and left in his red and white truck. Remember the one the letter writer mentioned, so he knows what so he's obviously driving? they know each other. Apparently, Apparently they know each other if he's mad at the person and he clearly seems to know who this person That's is if he's going Tracy to confront him. Tracy thought that he was going to confront him. So it seems the writer knew the vehicle and of course knew where they live. So if he was nearby watching, we'll probably never know because just minutes after speeding off, Ron lost control of his truck and slammed into a tree. He was pronounced dead on the scene. Wow, that's that's really bad. Yeah. 
Sorry to hear that. Mysteriously, they discovered a single bullet had been fired from the gun before the impact, though no shell casing or bullet was found. Okay. So how do they know? I mean, is what if he didn't put all the bullets in the gun? Oh, uh, I don't. <laughs> I mean, know you can how that like works. you don't have to put all six bullets in the gun, right? No, you can just put one. So maybe he only put five. Maybe in his haste, but I don't know. They think he fired. A shot. According to Ron's brother-in-law, Paul Freshour, the sheriff, whose name was Dwight Radcliffe, agreed with him initially that foul play was involved. However, an unnamed suspect was cleared and toxicology findings revealed Ron's blood alcohol content was 0.16, which is one and a half times the legal limit in Ohio. Not the recipe to make good decisions. No, but this seemed out of character to his friends and family since they said he was not a heavy drinker. But, like I said, you know, he's dealing with the stress and anxiety. Well, you don't have to be a heavy drinker to just get drunk, you know? Yeah, like maybe his, you know, his wife was out of town and he's dealing with the stress. Maybe he it's just had a couple drinks. It's easier to get drunk when you don't drink a lot because it takes less and it yeah. happens faster. Yeah, so I don't think that's too far-fetched to think he may have gotten drunk yeah. one night, even if he's not, you know, an alcoholic. So soon after Ron's death, residents of Circleville began receiving letters accusing Sheriff Radcliffe of a cover-up in Ron's death. Now, why would he do that? I don't know. Why would he do that? <laughs> One accusation from the letter writer was that Mary and Gordon Massey were behind the so-called accident and the sheriff was trying to cover it up. Okay, that sounds like an angle. Yeah, but why go through that much trouble? But why do that and why pull yourself into it so obviously? Well, apparently, the sheriff was wanting to get elected for something and he didn't want this whole letter writing thing to mess up his chances to get yeah. elected to some, I don't remember what it was. Yeah. Some important. He went on to accuse the sheriff of corruption and past mishandling of a previous case against the county coroner, Ray Carroll. Carroll had been accused of sexually abusing children, but no charges had been brought against him at the time, although he was eventually charged in 1993. Well, after all this happened. Yeah. So whoever is writing these letters sure seems to have a lot of information about a lot of different people. They do. Sounds like he has a lot of time on his hands to me. I would think so as well. <laughs> so he continues writing letters to Mary and other residents for years after Ron's death. So he doesn't let up here. No. He's just going to try to force this in so, and pile on this poor lady. Oh, but Mary and Gordon eventually admit they are having an affair. What? But they say it began after the letters started and after Ron's death. Of course Like they the did. letters drove them together. Okay. So the writer, sure. like the writer's, you know, goal was who knows. So maybe that's what he wanted all along. Well, I'm hoping I find out what the writer's goal was. It seems a little suspicious, but so let's go now to 1983. The writer's been tormenting the town for roughly six years now. Mary is still. And they didn't try to get like the FBI I in know, on this it's or like, something. Where are the police? Not just the police, the FBI, because they're the ones that would really be looking into something like this. Well, like this I said, the sheriff threat. was trying to hide this stuff because well, he's... Would make a big deal out of this now because yeah. you know, somebody would come out with a machine gun and shoot up a whole city. Yeah, you know? you're threatening I people. guess they didn't do that kind of stuff back in the 70s. So Mary is still driving her school bus, and one morning while traveling her normal route, she sees a vulgar sign on the side of the road about her daughter, Tracy, and Gordon Massey. Okay. Which is probably not true, like, you know... He may, they may be having an affair, but I don't think he's a child molester. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so this is just clearly scandal. Mary has had it, and she pulls over and takes the sign down. She finds it's attached to a post with a small box attached to both of them. She takes the whole thing home, and when she goes to inspect it, she finds a small gun inside the box. 
It was a poorly constructed booby trap that was designed to shoot Mary, but luckily for her, it failed. Okay, so how did he know that she would be the one that would see this and would also because get he knew out her daily he knew her daily bus route and go try to tear the signs. She's always down. tearing signs down. Okay, so it's not just a matter well, you know, of you know you put something like that character. with your daughter on there, you're going to go rip it yeah, down. It's not just impugning the character now; it's attempted murder. Yes, it's attempted murder. So Mary takes the contraption to the police, and someone has made a crude attempt to scratch off the serial number for the gun. But they were able to determine who the gun belonged to. Wait for it. Mary Gillespie's brother-in-law, Paul Freshour. Dun, dun, dun. Did you see that coming? No, I didn't actually. <laughs> and why would Paul Freshour, who was married to Ron's sister, Karen, want to cause all this turmoil and potentially kill Mary? I've got a pretty good guess, I think. Why? It's always related to an affair. They weren't having an affair. Were they? <laughs> no. Okay, so I'm wrong. You're wrong. So let's learn a little bit more about Paul. Back in 1968, Paul was a prison guard at Ohio State Prison when a riot broke out, and he, along with several other guards, were held prisoner. Sounds like uh, an experience that could mess you up. Yeah. The inmates threatened to decapitate them or burn them alive. Eventually, the National Guard was able to break in and save them. So that's pretty crazy. I imagine that could cause severe emotional and mental distress. Definitely give you some PTSD. But would it mess you up to the point where you would obsessively write letters and torture residents of your town? Well, from my extensive experience being in a prison lockdown, almost decapitated by prison guards, I would say (laughs) in my personal experience, not as much, but I can't speak for everybody. (laughs) During this time of the booby trap incident and letter writing, Paul was working for the Anheuser-Busch Company in Columbus. And like I said earlier, the letters were all postmarked from Columbus. So that would be easy for him to do on his way to work. If he did it, that's stupid because he's basically just tracking himself. But he's getting away with it for how many years now? Six? It's because nobody apparently is taking this seriously. So that's a little interesting, but not really conclusive proof. But what about the gun? Paul claimed that he had bought the gun from a coworker, but that it had been stolen way before this happened. Of course it had. Yeah. Convenient. Yeah, he didn't report it stolen though, did he? No. If somebody steals your gun, just a public service announcement, you tell the police immediately. Immediately, before it's used in a crime. So, although he didn't show up for work the day the booby trap was discovered, he did have a solid alibi, according to the police even, but I couldn't figure out what that was. They never said what it was, but he supposedly had an alibi. He was just out there driving that good old beer truck. But Sheriff Radcliffe did not care, and he decided to do his own little handwriting test. So okay, what he did, finally somebody does something smart. Well, this is not how you should do it. What he <laughs> did was he gave him photocopies of these letters and told Paul to copy them as best he could to make it look identical. Okay, now, really? Yeah, only the stupidest person is going to look at that and be like, well, <laughs> I'm the one You're who not trying these, to set me up here. So I guess I could do it just like this. I know, but I feel like if you gave me someone's handwriting and told me to copy it, I could get pretty close. And looking at those blocky letters, yeah. I'm thinking that's probably not the normal handwriting that person would yeah. have used. Yeah. So Because it looks like it. You remember those papers you used to get in kindergarten and it had the staff yeah. on it? It looks like they deliberately followed the lines of the staff because all the letters were the same height. Yeah. And even though they were looked italicized, it's like they were intentionally trying to make it look the way they made it look. Yeah, it was disguised. That's not their true handwriting. So this doesn't sound like the right way to go about it. And it is definitely not normal. But So it didn't work? Well, it did. 
Sheriff Radcliffe oh, actually work. used this as the evidence for his basis of arresting Paul Freshour for so attempted let me, murder. Let me guess how this went. Not too good. It didn't go well. So That's just like a lie detector test or you know, eyewitness testimony, which is usually not. It shouldn't be used in court. Yeah, because it's so easy to get wrong. as you're about to listen to this clip from Unsolved Mysteries, that's exactly what happened. Paul Freshour was put on trial for the attempted murder of his sister-in-law, Mary Gillespie. He wasn't charged with writing the threatening letters, but they were used against him as crucial evidence. What you're about to hear is taken from transcripts of the actual testimony. And did you explain to the handwriting analyst how you went about obtaining the samples? Yes, I did. It is my opinion that the handwriting on the envelopes, documents, and postcards were printed by the same person, it being the known handwriting, or hand printing, of Paul Freshout. Have you, at any time, suspected the defendant of being the one responsible for writing these letters and putting these signs up? Not at first. Mary began to suspect Paul Freshour after a tip from a surprising source. And his wife came to see me and indicated it might be a possibility. And can you look at this? Paul's boss testified that Freshour hadn't come to work the day the booby trap was found. Even though Freshour had a solid alibi for almost the entire day, he never took the stand in his own defense. It was a decision he would come to regret. We, the jury, find the defendant, Paul L. Freshour, guilty of attempted murder. So it seems unbelievable to me that they could use the letters against him for attempted murder, but they couldn't charge him with actually writing them? Yeah, that good old boy is like, well, looks like it's close enough to me. It's <laughs> I mean, close enough I'm to not, I'm not saying he's innocent. But you can't charge him with actually writing the letters, so how can they be used as you evidence? You have to prove that beyond the shadow of a reasonable doubt that somebody's guilty of something before you can, I mean, even though it's very likely that this is God. I mean, had they charged him with writing the letters and convicted him of that, in the in addition to the attempted murder, that would be okay. But Maybe you the case would carry some water. Yeah, then. yeah. Hold water. Hold water. So it's questionable proof that he wrote the letters and they really have no solid evidence to prove he was guilty. I mean, the gun is suspicious, but it seems to me... If, you know, you were so tireless in your efforts so far, why would you make such a poor attempt to remove a serial number? That would be, if you're going to remove a serial number, and see, the thing is, and what people don't know. There's no way to really remove it. (laughs) Even if you did, a gun has a signature on every gun's barrel is going to leave a very specific striation striation on a bullet. Mm-hmm. So even if the serial number's gone, you can still track a bullet lands to and a grooves, gun. lands and grooves. Yeah, and this that's going to get back to somebody one way or another. Yeah, so this could like make you think maybe he's being set up. Who knows? I don't know. I think he did it. So is he the writer? If he is, you would expect the letters to stop once he went to prison, right? That would be a reasonable assumption. Well, you'd be wrong. Uh oh, I'm sorry, Paul. The letters I continued for years. Wow. Some of the letters even contained arsenic. Somebody's stepping up. Wow, they're, they're not just threatening. They're attempting to kill somebody through the yeah. mail. So how was Paul getting arsenic in prison? I don't know. Is mm-hmm. there a undercover black market for arsenic and cigarettes in prison? I hope not. And so they eventually put him into solitary confinement. 
They monitored his mail and eventually put him on a mail ban, and the warden came to the conclusion that he could not be writing these letters. Okay, so that being said, that doesn't necessarily mean that he didn't write the letters up to that point. Right. What about a copycat? Well, that could be. So the letters are still being postmarked from Columbus because... So they're coming from the same place. Yeah, and Paul is in prison in Lima, which is on the other side of the state, apparently. So there's no way... Did they no ever way. publicize that these letters were all postmarked from Columbus? Or is that something I don't that, even know if they were trying to solve this thing at the time. Oh my it goodness. Just, just didn't make sense. Most of the letters were directed at teachers, police, politicians, and, you know, claiming about all things about corruption. Principles. Yes. One accused the prosecutor who convicted Paul of getting a school teacher pregnant early in his career and having her murdered to cover up the crime. That sounds so outlandish I know. that it probably happened. So what is going on? Is this a copycat? And how does this person have so much information on so many people? That's True or not? That's the question I'm asking. So Paul, who'd been sentenced to 7 to 25 years for the attempted murder of his sister-in-law, Mary, and he had served seven years and he came up for parole, but the parole board denied his parole because of the staggering numbers of letters still circulating. Like I said. Well, that's logical. How can... He can't possibly be sending yes, these letters. how is this his but fault? But they're somehow still his Even fault. Even if he did do the original ones, how can this be used against him Unless in this kind of Unless he's communicating with somebody on the outside and having them do it for him, but who would do that? I don't know. Well, so, I mean, he might do it if he was guilty of it, but who would agree to do would? it for him? So, just days after the hearing... Paul receives a letter in prison, and this is a clip from Unsolved Mysteries, and this is what it said. Now, when are you going to believe you aren't going to get out of there? I told you two years ago, when we set them up, they stay set up. Don't you listen at all? Now, to me, the handwriting here looks a little different than the other letters. Yeah, like I said, it's still blocky, but they're not all uniformly the same size like it was in the one that I saw. Yeah. So, who do you think sending it to him? That I don't have any idea. And I definitely don't think it could have been him sending it to himself. How would that benefit him? It just makes him look incriminated. I don't know. He's eventually released from prison after serving 10 years, and so it's 1994 now. And coincidentally or not, this is when the letters seem to stop. It's also about the time Nirvana got real big, right? <laughs> is there a link? That's when he died. Well, they did. They got big when he died, though. Well, didn't they, they were already big. So they got real big. Yeah, when they he got died, real didn't big. Didn't they? They did. So did he kill Kurt Cobain too? I don't think so. So, but you're not saying he didn't. <laughs> He probably did not. He was not in the Seattle area at the time. Mm, well, we don't know where he was because the letters are coming from Columbus and he's not in Columbus, right? He yeah. could have been I don't in know Seattle. where he relocated to he after he got out of prison. Seattle. I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying. So a journalist uncovered information that hadn't been used at trial. A fellow bus driver of Mary's said she had been driving down the same route 20 minutes before Mary and had seen a large man with sandy hair pulled off the side of the road at the exact spot standing next to a yellow El Camino. This did not match Paul Freshour's description, and this lead was never, apparently, investigated. Okay, so he pulled him into a room and asked him to copy handwriting to see if he could convict him on that. Meanwhile, yeah, he's got a suspect, a suspect he's not looking at. With, at the exact scene of the exact place, that one doesn't of match these him. things were, were yeah, set this up. Is the booty, this is the booby trap. This is the booby trap. Yes. So this is the attempted murder yes, right here. Yes. I, I wouldn't follow up on that no, either. No, they didn't even follow up on it. Yeah, I ain't got so, time for all that. 
what does this all mean? Who wrote all these letters? Did one person start out writing the letters and then maybe there were copycat writers? It's still never been proven conclusively to this day. Oh, no. You mean there's no answer (laughs) here? There is no answer. But online sleuths have several theories. The first suspect is David Longberry. Remember the bus driver that was into Mary, but she wasn't into? I do remember that. Could he have been the original letter writer? How big was he? Did he drive an El Camino? (laughs) I don't know. Remember when Mary and Ron got together with Ron's sister Karen and her husband Paul Freshour? They wrote a series of letters to David and told him they knew he was the letter writer and the letters stopped for a short time. So was that him and he got scared off? Maybe Paul took over there or maybe Paul was manipulating it the whole time. Because, you know, he's the one that wrote the letters to David. So he could have stopped writing letters for a few weeks to make them think it was working just to mess with everybody's head. Or could it be that Paul was too busy driving around in his new yellow (laughs) El Camino? He doesn't have one. Now? One thing we know, it's not Ron because Ron's dead. Okay, so he didn't have an El Camino. No. But, you know, one thing for sure about David Longberry is he was not a good guy. In 1999, he was arrested for sexually assaulting a 14-year-old girl. Oh, and he was fixated on talking about About an underage person being molested in that way. So that almost seems like there might be a link there. So is he the type of guy who would send out letters to try to ruin Mary and Gordon after being rejected by Mary? Don't know. Maybe. Maybe. Because if you know, you're the kind of person that does maybe they like really that were having child, an affair and he knew it, and maybe he was just so furious, and over she tried it. to cut it off. Yeah, and who knows? Another theory is Mary and Gordon were in on the letters to try to get rid of her husband, Ron. Insurance money. <laughs> Did their affair really begin after the letters began? I doubt it. Seems unlikely, but it seems like a very elaborate way to get rid of your husband. I'm you sure you me. have a much more efficient way. Yeah, there's much more streamlined ways of doing that. Of course. Another suspect is Karen Freshour. Uh-oh. Paul's wife. Well, former wife. I don't think a woman wrote those letters. She could have. I'm Well, she's probably smart enough to make it look yeah, like a Yeah, make dude. it look like a man's writing. I know what yours looks like. Chicken scratch. I can do that. Yeah, but not that kind of chicken scratch. <laughs> I could do that. It doesn't look like a, a ransom letter. <laughs> So Karen and her husband went through a nasty divorce shortly before the booby trap was set for Mary. And even though Karen had accused Paul of being physically abusive, a judge sided with Paul and granted him custody of their children and gave him the house. And the El Camino. Wait for it. Karen was described as a very angry, manipulative woman. She apparently borrowed Paul's typewriter from his sister saying she wanted to write a book. Mm -hmm. Okay. And shortly after that, several letters started circulating that were <laughs> typed instead of handwritten. Coincidence? Of course. Another I in- see no link here. <laughs> Another interesting fact, Karen's brother owned a yellow, yellow El, El Camino, Camino. And the description of the man seen next to the booby trap site matched Karen's new love interest, not Paul. Ah, uh, so the shoe's on the other hand. It is. Could she have set the trap to frame Paul? Sounds like Remember it. Remember that half-hearted attempt to remove the serial number on the gun? Maybe she wanted it to lead back to Paul. Ah, uh-huh, sounds like something a woman would do. It does. Sounds smarter than what a guy would do. After Paul was arrested, Karen regained custody of their kids. Another Just motive what she for wanted. that. Yeah. yeah. So, most likely, there were several copycat writers of these letters. I've seen estimates that there were nearly 20,000 letters written over the course of all those years. That is some dedication if that's one person. That is some extreme dedication. 
So Paul Freshour died in 2012, still fighting to prove his innocence. The case is considered closed, even though no one has ever been officially charged in the letter writing. Wow. So it looks like we will never know for sure who this mysterious writer or writers were. But we do know this. Somebody's got a yellow El Camino. Somebody had a yellow El Camino, and that probably was pretty cool back then. It's still cool. What are you talking about? (laughs) My shop teacher in junior high had a red El Camino. It was like a 1965. It's a very nice car. Yes. Probably not even as cool as the one we're talking about. Probably not. So. That is the still unsolved case of the Circleville letters. So if you have any leads on this story or if you own a (laughs) Don't try to call Crime Stoppers or anything because they don't care. It's closed. So if you have leads or if you own a yellow El Camino, please give us a call on our phone number. (laughs) Let us know. We'll solve this together. We will solve this together. So thank you for this again. Crystal brought a great true crime story and totally dashed my hopes by giving me one that has absolutely zero ending. It's almost like a Stephen <laughs> King novel. We don't give a yeah, thought to the this, ending. It's the just the story is, is good. The fun part is speculation. Like, who did this? This El Camino driver, which was Karen. <laughs> she was wearing a bodysuit. It was Karen's boyfriend. It was Karen. It seems to me like if you're going to do something like that, you drive a little, like, less conspicuous car like take a bike well we don't know who did it there's no way to know for sure we all have our theories i'm sticking with the car (laughs) the car did it. the car was sentient you didn't address (laughs) like christine you didn't address that but i feel that's probably a big part of the story that everybody's missing okay i should do some more research yeah we'll we'll do a follow-up on the car so that brings us to the portion of our episode that we like to call da 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 layla and coffee talk what a pause Pause. Oh, <laughs> you see what I did there? Yeah. Not even intentionally. So this week, we can talk about their experience with Christmas, right? Yes, this was Coffee's first Christmas with us. We actually got her on my birthday last year, so she missed Christmas by a couple yep. of days. Crystal's, and she really knew the difference. Anyway. Yeah, Crystal's greatest worst present I've ever gotten her. She was. And you didn't even tell me that the Foley House Inn was pet friendly. We could have taken coffee bean. Yeah, that would have probably ended horribly. (laughs) It would have been another. There would have been some blood curling screens, but for a whole different reason, (laughs) ma'am. So she really enjoyed all the people coming and going, and she barked a lot at them. Like she really, like when people walk in the door, she's going to bark her head off for at least five to 10 minutes. And then she loves you and you're her best friend. Yes. We had some people come over the other day and somebody hadn't been here in a long time. Don't think he ever met coffee before. And she lost her mind. We had to put her in a kennel. And then after you give her a little piece of ham, she regretfully informs you that you are her best friend. You're her best friend now. So they've done a lot of begging this week. They got a lot of extra food. So there's been a lot of extra trips outside. And they are just... And they're both laying in the floor right now. So if you hear jingle jangles and some snores, the dogs came down here to tell us it's time to wrap it up. So they're very excited about the new year and they're going to get into a lot of mischief that we'll keep you apprised of. They will. So thank you for listening to this week's episode. Once again, you can find us online at www.scarysavannahandbeyond.com or www.scarysavannah.net. You can find us on social media at Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, some other fourth, fifth TikTok. thing, TikTok, if you look up the user at Scary Savannah. And we update on all those frequently. 
You can find us on Good Pods if you're using that app. It's a really cool app. Just look us up. I'm on there and our podcast is on there as well. We'd love to connect with you through that. You can call us at 912-406-2899. That's 912-406-2899. You'd like to leave a voicemail about the show. You can find our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash scary savannah. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. And you can get merch if you support at higher levels. We appreciate your looking into that. If you like what you hear and you want to help us keep it going, because I can't stop spending money on this yes, thing. Yes, this podcast is costing us a small fortune. It's a fortune. <laughs> yeah. And make sure you like, rate, and subscribe on all these platforms that you yes. can, especially like if you have Apple. if you have an Apple product. All you have to do, you have the the podcast app is built into your phone. You don't have to download it. Just type in podcasts and it will come up. It's a purple app and you can go there and give us a rating, a review. You can do that on Apple. You can do that on Spotify. Think Audible. Think Audible and Google will let you do it as well. Mm -hmm. And we appreciate all those because it helps us get out to a larger audience. And we'd love to keep this thing going as long as we can keep it going. So I think that just leaves the one last thing. Join us next time in Savannah, where the ghosts and the good times live on. Mm -hmm.